This is Janelle Wood, and you are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast. Well, welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This is your host, Janelle Wood, and you are listening in for season six, where we've been starting off each month with a different young woman, sharing her faith story, and allowing her the space to ask some tough questions about God and Christianity. But as we wrap up this season here, we've had some unfinished conversations and unanswered questions. And so beginning today, we're going to be going through a series of bonus episodes over the next month, bringing back some previous co-hosts from this season and starting with today's episode for Rachel. We talked with Rachel and had guests such as doctors Paul Copan and Doug Grotheis and apologist Lexi Zanias. And if you haven't listened to those conversations or Rachel's first episode where she shared her story, I encourage you to go back and take a listen to those. They'll be linked in the show notes. But I'm excited today. Um, first of all, Rachel was back here for this conversation, but she had uh, a friend uh, situation come up. And so Rachel, I hope when you get to listen to this later, that you feel that um, I advocated for you properly. (laughs) And uh, I just think that you're a really good friend. Um, But there was still a lot that you uh, that you shared in those first episodes. So we still had a lot to unpack. And so today, I'm excited to welcome a special guest. Michael McClymond is a professor of modern Christianity at St. Louis University and author of The Devil's Redemption, A New History and Interpretation of Christian Universalism, which was chosen as a winner in the Gospel Coalition's 2018 Book Awards. He earned his MDiv from Yale University and PhD in theology from University of Chicago. He has held teaching and research appointments at Wheaton College, the University of California, San Diego, Emory, Yale, and the Universities of Birmingham in the UK and Berlin in Germany. He has written or edited a dozen volumes that treat Christian theology, North American religion, world Christianity, comparative religions, and biblical studies. I'm really looking forward to learning from him. Dr. Michael McClymond, welcome. Thank you for that very formal introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me the informal version. An uh, informal introduction is my claim to fame, far more important for my students, is my band open for Chuck Berry. <laughs> I've invented, really? Johnny B. Good invented guitar rock. Yeah, the late Chuck Berry. Yeah, I opened with my band and we did original Christian music for a Chuck Berry crowd. So, wow. Far more significant to students and degrees and publications. I was going to say that it's pretty cool. Wasn't Back to the Future? Didn't they play his song? Yes, exactly. Yes. So, yeah, you're dating yourself there, though. You remember that? <laughs> yeah, but it's still popular. And you I saw that on a rerun somewhere. Yeah, yeah, Netflix, right. It was just Netflix. So I'm really happy that you're here, Michael. I know that you're a scholar. You've authored several books, and you've written for some well-known publications. And you also mentioned that you've been on quite a few podcasts. So what topics do you get asked to speak about the most since you do have such a widespread, you know, a lot of knowledge, a lot of knowledge about a lot of things? Well, I originally was asked primarily to talk on on Jonathan Edwards, the early American figure, because I did extensive work in him. I gave a keynote talk in, in Leuven, Belgium this summer after I finished teaching in Berlin. Um, and then... You know, the work on Edwards developed into work on revival in America. And so actually, I, I, I actually part of a documentary that's being produced on the history of revivals. And so I'm one of the key because I edited the Encyclopedia of Religious Revivals in America, 120 authors um, and covering kind of the whole sweep from early colonial era up through 
Pentecostal charismatic uh, uh, revivals more recently. And I've, uh, global Pentecostalism is another area of interest, world Christianity. I worked with the late uh, Laman Sana from Yale University, who's an African-born scholar, worked on world Christianity. And then uh, more, most recently, the issue of universal universalism or universal salvation has been kind of front and center. I have a book that's just coming out this month called Martyrs, Monks, and Mystics. I hope I get asked eventually to talk on that because that's it's not a controversial book where I'm engaging uh, people that I don't agree with, uh, but it's a, it's a positive book of teaching on the Christian life that synthesizes ancient Eastern, Orthodox, Catholic, you know, Protestant and Pentecostal perspectives, trying rather than just putting them alongside of one another, tries to integrate them and show how they fit together as mm -hmm. part of a larger picture of what it means to live as a Christian. Well, you jumped the gun because that was my very next question to ask you about that book, I promise. But I will say I was reading about that book this morning as I was preparing for this interview. And I have a book called Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy that was written by a gentleman named Father Andrew Damick, who's an Orthodox uh, believer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are you familiar with that book? I I see. No, okay. Not. Uh -uh. No, you're no. not. Okay. So uh, what's interesting, for those of you who can't see this, which is probably everybody because I haven't uh, started putting these on YouTube yet, is uh, you have probably the most extensive bookshelf situation going on behind you that I've ever seen. I've seen a lot, uh, uh, but I've not, not seen It's not. Just so everybody knows, it's not a prop. Those are actual <laughs> books. It's not, it's not paper mache. So. And have you read all of them? No, no. <laughs> but, it, but, it's but when impressive. you want to write books, you you refer to lots of books. You have to you have to kind of churn through an entire library to write a new book. That's right. I have about a thousand books now. You don't read them through when you're doing research. You pull out what you need for your argument. So there's a different way of reading if you're yeah. a layperson versus if you're a scholar. You tend to pull out that information because you're bringing it together, part of wow. your information. What's the difference between a layperson and a scholar for somebody listening who wants to know? If you have to ask that question, you're not. <laughs> a, lay, a layperson is someone who has a occupation other than academics who's interested in a topic. And when it comes to, I don't know, architecture, I'm a layperson. I don't, I've had no formal training in architecture. I might be interested. So I would go to a library, pull off a book that had pictures of skyscrapers or, I don't know, ranch-style yeah. houses, whatever, right? Or maybe the Taj Mahal, and I would read about that to learn. So I, I'm thinking of lay, lay persons are interested in learning about a topic, and I assume that's the, probably the majority of your yeah. listening audience. Yeah, yes, for sure. Um, so tell me what, what inspired you to write this new book on martyrs, monks, and mystics? Well, that has really been evolving a long time. I think it was this this experience of becoming a christian believer many years ago and then being on this in this journey of encountering different kinds of christian practice i mean i i was raised in a methodist church and in college i went to a presbyterian church i went to a bible church um a non-denominational church i did, began reading uh, Christian theology for the first time, and I kind of gravitated toward the Calvinist, Reformed, Presbyterian uh, tradition. Um, and over time, it, then eventually, what happened is I um, I went to I went to study in England, 
And I had never, because I had gone to so-called low church or kind of informal, you know, Protestant services, I had never really experienced liturgical worship. Hmm. And there was this great preacher in Brighton, England, where I was living. I was at Sussex University and named Ian Barclay. And he was a wonderful Bible expositor. And I really wanted biblical preaching and teaching. And so I went to hear him. And then in the process, I got exposed to this ancient style of worship. You know, and, you know, with the written prayers, right? Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from my ways like lost sheep. I still remember these prayers. It was from the 1928 prayer book. The only one that stuck in my throat was, God save the queen. You know, I couldn't <laughs> quite say that as an American rebel. But most of the rest. So I began to realize that this pattern of worship was really meaningful. And so I gravitated into the Anglican tradition which like the Catholic tradition involves written prayers. It doesn't mean that all your prayers have to be written down, but that's a part of the of weekly worship. And and the Lord's Supper is also is, is key to that. So the Catholic element began to enter in. And then surprisingly to me, as someone who taught at Wheaton College, my first teaching job, I ended up going through a secular university, University of California, to a Jesuit Catholic university. And well, it's a long story, but you know, meeting the Franciscans, Dominicans, Jesuits, these members of these ancient orders. It was like Army, Navy, or Air Force. I didn't even understand, like, they're in, you know, like, well, remember 1213. Ah, yeah, but remember 1304. It's like, I don't get the references here. <laughs> but there's this internal discussion over, you know, hundreds of years. And so I really began to discover the riches of the whole Christian tradition. I began to think of, isn't there a way to bring together the ancient with the contemporary and fuse them in a new way? There's a there's a verse in Matthew 13 that says that every scribe who's become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven will be like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things both old and new. So that's what martyrs, monks, and mystics is. It's really an attempt to bring out of the treasure of things old and new and to bring them together. I have discussion of contemporary Pentecostal spirituality and then ancient Eastern desert fathers, desert mothers, and everything in the middle brought together. Wow. And rather than just putting these different traditions alongside of one and i've tried to integrate like i have a chapter on mission the spirituality of mission i have francis of assisi he's the guy you know the birdbath saint that's the joke that yeah he's the saint of the birdbath because often the, Catholic, <laughs> the birds you know there uh but yeah francis of assisi and then i have john wesley and i compare them and in the chapter on virtue i talk about thomas aquinas and jonathan edwards so i'm breaking down these artificial barriers and distinctions between different brands of Christian spiritual life, and because we need to learn from all of it. And all of the great Christian teachers, they talked about love, uh, loving God, loving your neighbor, humility, self-denial, imitating Christ. There's so much that's shared, and there's there's a lot to learn from the different strands that, yeah. that I've tried to weave together. How do you determine what's artificial and what's uh, essential? Because I noticed when I was reading about your book that it also speaks to some other faith traditions. So, how do you differentiate that? Well, uh, as a as a you know as a Christian uh, follow Christ follower, I put Christ at the middle. You know, Christ certainly is my criterion for what I would embrace. That doesn't mean that there are not things that I could learn from that are commendable in non-Christian traditions. There's a Jewish proverb that says, who is the wise man? And the answer is he who learns from everyone. So that tends to be my attitude. But in terms of like what I'm going to put into practice spiritually, it has to has to agree essentially with Christ. Um, it, it has to have some foundation in scripture. And I also look at things that have some you know longevity to them. 
If someone comes to me and said, oh, there's this wonderful new spiritual tradition. I said, how old is it? Oh, it's three weeks old, but it's really <laughs> going well. It's like, oh, I'm not sure. The Catholics are maybe at the other extreme of wanting, you know, judging things in terms of centuries. You know, it's like, you know, like wanting it to be around for a long time before you even make up your mind. But I think there's a wisdom in looking what's what's endured for that time. And then, uh, you know, the incarnation to me is very central to spirituality because what the incarnation tells me is that God entered fully into human life and that every dimension of humanness, our our mind, our body, our 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 conscience, our soul, emotions, imagination, all of that is ac accepted and embraced. And any spirituality that tells me I have to set my mind aside or that my body is evil and I need to react against my body or or even that the imagination, I mean, there's, some people are afraid of the imagination, right? Mm -hmm. I should think that people like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien have shown how the imag Christian imagination can be used for holy purposes, but that's still a debated point. So, yeah. So incarnational approach means that it's it's very it's very it's very holistic and wants to embrace all the different elements of life mm. of, of human life just because Christ entered into all of that in wow. his full came. It sounds like a fascinating book. If people want to look into it, they can find it, I'm guessing, on Amazon. Is that fair yes, to say? Released on November 7th. I think there's a discount, ten dollars off when I last checked at Christian Book Distributors. So great. Um you mentioned briefly a little bit of your background. Were you always so committed to Jesus, or was that a journey for you? No, no, I was a, I was a teenage rebel, and <laughs> I yeah no, and and before I became a Christian, I tell people I worshipped a god of wood and metal, <laughs> my my electric guitar. So yeah. you know, my my goal in life, I wanted to be better than Jimi Hendrix and. Eric Clapton, you know, put rolled together. And then after I became was a new Christian believer about age 18, then I was convinced God was going to make me really great and everyone would be applauding. And then at the end of my guitar solo, I would point my finger in the air, you know, pointing to God. And that would be my witness for him. And, you know, and it didn't quite work out that way. Um, so the Lord had other things in store for me. But the, the turning point for me was just at the end of uh, uh, end of high school. I was really going through a period of, well, today I would look back and say this, you know, philosophical questioning, um, meaning of life. It wasn't really so much about sin and guilt. It was really about meaning because I thought, well, what if uh, what if I become successful in life? And at that point, I was studying science, and I thought, well, what if I become the best chemist? I win the Nobel Prize in chemistry. And then we had better tires on our cars, but then, you know, maybe there are fewer accidents, but then everyone dies anyway. You look at it from a cosmic standpoint, the mm -hmm. sun will supernova after a certain number of millions of years, and it will be like we never existed. If you look at it from, you go you, you go back, you, you, you pan out far enough. And the book that first spoke to me in the Bible is one that a lot of Christians even struggle with, and that's the book of Ecclesiastes. Hmm. Vanities, all is vanity. That actually spoke to me. And I, in my high school English class, the teacher had assigned uh, Albert Camus' book, The Stranger, which is this existentialist novel where this guy commits a murder kind of for without any reason for doing it. And it's a very strange book about the meaninglessness of life. But I actually, in a weird way, that book and then reading Ecclesiastes, these things seem to fit together. And then I had this, this, this moment of the Lord kind of pulling back the veil 
one night where I just felt his presence. And I opened the Bible and it was said, ask and it shall be given to you, seek and you shall find. Hmm. Wow. That was a turning point uh, for me. Wow, that's amazing. And just real quick, something you mentioned earlier, how you went from that, was it, is it called lowbrow? Low, lowbrow? The lowbrow church, is that what it's called? Low church, low, low church. church. Okay, you low church to high church. Heard that, haven't heard that expression before. I so have, I, but <laughs> so I don't low, use it enough church, to remember it. High church is sign making sign of the cross, incense, stained glass. Right, liturg- liturgical. Low, yes, high, very formal worship. Low church refers to um, got a meeting in a gymnasium, worship band, drums. Right up front and um in informal style more participatory usually that's an appeal for many people it's like that you get testimonies from different people lay people being called up and they're sharing mm-hmm. you know about their own experience it isn't so focused on the minister mm-hmm. do you still lean towards the liturgical side of things now oh I, i'm very see i'm 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 charismatic as well so so i i mean you asked the question how i ended up writing a book <laughs> Optimistics. I call myself a, a Calvinist charismatic Catholic. Okay. <laughs> and and this it's really true. I feel equally comfortable in a liturgical service, very mm-hmm. formal, in studying the Bible, reading it in Greek, analyzing it, picking it apart, talking about what it means, and a charismatic service where we're flowing with the gifts of the Spirit. I mean, I speak in tongues. Sometimes I'm studying the Greek New Testament. I just spontaneously in the morning i'll start speaking in tongues so i flow back and forth between these experiences and i i think it's that experiential basis that really led me to research and then to write and then to say you know what these things are not antithetical i mean last summer i was in berlin with a group of german students and we visited this community in berlin called shema neuf and there were two nights that the students visited. It ended up as a really interesting point for discussion in the class afterward, because the first night it was, I wish I had a picture to show you. It was this beautiful, it's kind of Byzantine stuff. You made it like the Byzantine icons. And these, these they were lay people, but they were wearing white robes and they were praying prayers. It was, of course, in German language service for the unity of the global church. But it was, I mean, they processed in, you know, wearing their white robes. It just looked like something I mean, just like what you would think is the most beautiful kind of liturgical, formal, you know, worship service. And the next night that the students visited, it was a wild, charismatic service. It was the same group. Hmm. And people were speaking in tongues. They were walking around and people were praying. You know, lay people were praying and it was kind of open microphone type of atmosphere. And when we came back in class, the what we realized is that we, we create these artificial divisions that like... If someone had only come to the first service, they well, this is a beautiful service, but obviously these people don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. And then if you went to the, the second service, you say, well, they know a lot about the Holy Spirit. Obviously, they know nothing about liturgy and formal worship. But Shema Nif really bridges that. And mm-hmm. I think the, f- the future church is going to be it's going to incorporate. It's going to it's going to be a convergence of these different, you know, particularly the the Catholic, the Evangelical, and the Charismatic. That's sort of the, the traditional the word-oriented evangelical and then the spirit and experiential orientation, they all actually belong together. And, and not every church has to be the same, too. I mean, there's there's a spectrum that's legitimate legitimate diversity. But but what, what we shouldn't have is one of these groups denouncing, you know, 
anathematizing other like you're really evil you're really wrong you shouldn't worship that way or if you worship in liturgy it's dead there's no life in it or the liturgical people saying to the pentecostals you're crazy you know Which, you need to have order in your service that happens Which, all the, the time <laughs> oh you mean the, the denunciation well i mean the belittling i think you know belittling. i I grew up going to a charismatic Pentecostal church uh, when I was very young, then moved to Free Methodist, then went to a uh, Lutheran school, right, for four years, and then ended up at a Methodist um, college. Uh, like, I've always considered myself not belonging anywhere. It's interesting that you said uh, that you feel like, you know, you belong everywhere, whereas I've always felt kind of the opposite, like, so it's interesting. Um, I'm going to have to read your book. But I was listening to Frank Turek just the other day. He was giving a talk, I think, in Missouri. I may be wrong about the location. And somebody came up to him for the Q&A and said, why aren't you Catholic? Because he grew up Catholic. And one of the things that he mentioned is that he grew up in the Catholic Church. He's been to uh, you know Mass hundreds of times in his life, and he's never heard the gospel, and except for one time. And that was when his father passed away. And... Um, I thought that was really interesting because that was something that I remember having grown up with some of the charismatic stuff, the invitation for, you know, repentance and like the Billy Graham model and all that stuff. Like I always thought that was so important. Um, how do we, this was not what we were going to talk about, by the way, <laughs> this was not on the list, um, but how do we bridge that gap of appreciating one another and the beauty that's in these different forms of worship and, um, you know, coming to the Lord. Well, I mean, you touched on, this is a pretty important question. If, you know, if the gospel is not being preached, then there is something missing. Um, so I think I can see two different sides to this because on one hand I could see, um, I could see, and, and I, I have experienced in certain denominations, traditions, it doesn't seem that there is an explicit call for people to choose to follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. We think of Jesus' own life. He called Peter and Andrew, said, come follow me. You know, he said, I'll make you fishermen. But said they left their nets, they followed him. And that was a decisive call, the call. And I think there's something comparable to that that needs to go forth. Um, my 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 little daughter came with me to a Catholic service for the first time, and I said, "What did you think about the service?" And she made some comments on the architecture, and then I said, "Well, what did you think about the sermon?" And she said to me, "Well, what sermon?" I said, "You know, when the man stood up in the pulpit and talked." And she said to me, "She said, oh, I thought he was just talking to God or to himself. <laughs> it didn't it didn't project to her because she." She had been to other services where the minister really projected. And so there has to be a call. Now, I know Catholics. I think of a friend of mine who wrote a book called Jesus 101. John Gresham is his name, and he's been a seminary professor. But he says that his goal is for Catholics in the pew to have an encounter with Jesus because he thinks that there is evangelization. Now, to take the other side of this, so I think that those who are accustomed to a certain way of calling for a decision— like if you don't actually have an explicit call for, you know, if you if you believe in Jesus, raise your hand or stand up or walk to the front of the room, that if you haven't asked for that physical outward sign, then you've not preached the gospel, right? Or you, yeah, you've not called for decision. I don't know that, you see, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. That mm -hmm. some, some are a little too, maybe too 
rigid in their sense of what it means to to call for a decision. But clearly, Jesus call, calls he calls he called people in his in his earthly life. He continues to call people in the spiritual sense today to be. We have to decide to to follow him. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I want to pivot a little bit here because Rachel, as I mentioned, um, had some unanswered questions that we didn't really get a chance to talk about. Um, and one of those is one of the things that I think is an essential thing, but I, I'm interested in knowing uh, your perspective on this. I, I'm wondering, because I know you've talked a lot about this in your books and in some articles that you've written as well. Um, how did you get started talking about the topic of universalism? And I'd love for you to define that for whoever's listening. Friend, if you're enjoying this episode, you may also enjoy exclusive bonus content each month. Finding Something Real is a podcast that has some costs associated with it. We have a website, monthly subscriptions to stay organized. We design things. We like to pay an assistant producer who keeps things going around here, that kind of stuff. We're not in the business of trying to make money, but we are in the business of wanting to keep this show going and be sustainable. So we use Patreon, and if you haven't heard of it, Patreon is the best place for creators to build memberships by providing exclusive access to their work and a deeper connection with their communities. Each month, patrons who support Finding Something Real get a bonus episode where we recap the month's episodes. Often those episodes feature our co-hosts, and they will often share what this journey was like. There's other perks over there too, and it's easy to get involved. Just go to findingsomethingreal.com and click support at the top of the page. We'd love to have you over there in our Patreon community. Well, I felt specifically that I, I needed to address this. Uh, you know, well, I should go back before that. When I was in seminary, I did uh, I did an essay on Karl Barth and Origen. Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N is the name of an ancient uh, Christian teacher, well-recognized teacher, but one who was a universalist and stirred up a lot of discussion. And then Bart, B-A-R-T-H, he is the 20th century Swiss theologian who, he didn't affirm that everyone will be saved, but he thought that we could hope for salvation, so it's sometimes called hopeful, hopeful universalism. Um, and he thought, Bart asserted that not that, that everyone is elect, which was a real major departure from the earlier teaching of just about everyone to saying that some are chosen or predestined or elected and others are not. But I, you know, this this had been kind of in the back of my mind for many years. And um, then I also had a dream. I had a, I had this remarkable dream of this storm of judgment coming in. Hmm. And no, everyone's just like sipping. Uh, it was like a like a wine and cheese, and people are sipping and taking their their cracker, putting it into the dip. And this this huge storm was coming, and I remember being so concerned to get everyone to a place of safety, and everyone did at the very last minute come into safety as this. I mean, it was this gigantic twister, the, the, this tornado that was that was so vast. It was like you know two three miles across. It was like the the kind of you know storm that would have taken the Empire State Building and tossed it from Manhattan down into over across the, into, you know, to New Jersey. And in the dream, I heard the voice of God say, this is my judgment and my people have forgotten. Hmm. Tell them. So I had this experience where I, and I, I didn't know what to do with that. And then 
in 2011 when Rob Bell's book came out Love called wins. Love Wins. And then it was so prominently featured in the media. You know, there was a cover story in Newsweek magazine, What If There Is No Hell? I just really sensed a tug from what I think was the Holy Spirit saying, you need to write on this. And I didn't want to, I did not want to write on this hmm. because I mean, for a number of reasons, one is it, it I, well, first of all, I had no idea what a vast uh, topic it was because universalism comes in many different shades and variations. And there's this very long, complicated history of arguments for and against the universalist position. And also, I, I mean, I just, it wasn't it, my inclination, but I really felt like this was God's assignment for me to write this book. And that became this work called The Devil's Redemption, which I don't really, I mean, I don't recommend this for the average reader. It's just way too much information. It's half a million words. I'm working right now on a short book. It's like 100 questions with short answers. Hmm. We're going to be under 200 pages on that summarizes, kind of distills the kind of core ideas. There are some online essays. If someone searches under My Michael McClymond Universalism, they'll come up with some some shorter articles they could read on that. Yeah. But so I... I think that as a as a challenge to traditional Christian faith, one of the great many of the great moral challenges today lie in the area of sexuality. But I think on a strictly theological level, universalism may be the greatest the greatest challenge. And I'm really convinced that I don't I don't think you can embrace universalism and not have it affect every every area of Christian belief. I think it ultimately affects um, not just the way you look at final salvation, the way you look at God, Jesus, the cross. In historical fact, you know, there was a universalist church in America a lot of people have forgotten about. The In the 19th century, it was the fifth, the fourth or fifth largest denomination in the U.S. And once they embraced universalism, there was a kind of like theological deconstruction that happened. And the universalists ultimately gave up the divinity of Jesus. And they merge with the Unitarians. Hmm. They believe in God, but they don't believe they don't believe that Jesus is God. And I don't think that was an accident. I think that that there is a connection between what we believe about Jesus' death on the cross, what we believe about eternal punishment, and what we believe about about um, uh, Jesus' divinity. They're all interconnected. I call that the three-legged stool. And when they pulled out that leg, we don't believe in hell any longer. They basically said God doesn't punish, God is not a punishing God. He just blesses. He just blesses everyone. Well, why did what does Jesus' death on the cross mean? And this is where people again say, well, he was an example for us. It wasn't, he didn't actually atone for us. And once they the universalists in America said that he wasn't, he didn't die to atone or to be our sin bearer, they no longer needed to believe in the the divinity of Jesus. Jesus could just be a good moral teacher. Mm -hmm. And so the whole thing kind of collapsed. Yeah. So for somebody listening who's maybe not familiar with the term universalist or universalism as it relates to hell, um, would you mind sharing what exactly is that belief? Is it, I could paraphrase what I think it is, is it just that you believe that everybody at some point is going to get the opportunity to accept God, even if it's in the next life until basically nobody is in hell anymore? Is that... Is that um, how it works? Well, no, the universalism is defined not in terms of opportunity, but in terms of outcome. Mm. Uh, it would be a very different theology if it just said everyone has an opportunity. 
and and that we could have a good discussion on that. What would it mean to say everyone having an opportunity? So the universes and outcomes is er, everyone will ultimately all all um, you know intelligent creatures. See, this would even include angels too, fallen angels. If you really are going to be a strict universalist, then Lucifer will be saved too. The fallen angels will be saved. Every human being, without exception, it's a very it's a totally uncompromising type of position because if even one person were lost eternally, then you're no longer a universalist. And so I compare it to like saying there are no white crows, you know, hmm. it's hard to make that claim because like you could look around the world and every crow I've seen is black. Well, what if there's a white crow? What if it's hiding behind the telephone pole over there? You know, so it's, it's hard to make a universal statement like that. And and I you know I also in my book I kind of compare it to like the hundred percent election return like would you believe you know Kim Jong Un claims that at the most recent Korean election that was a hundred percent turnout <laughs> and it was a hundred percent for himself like everyone laughs because it's like anything that depends if it really depends on human will the human will is not all you know going to go in the same direction there's going to be some scattering of some saying yes others saying no but universalists. Um, many some universalists believe that I mean one of the big variation is some believe that at death every human being without exception goes immediately into God's blissful presence. That sometimes that used to be called ultra universalism, and then the those who have a kind of idea of a purgatory after death believe that many at the time of their death are not ready to to be with god eternally and so they go through a process of purging something like the catholic purgatory although not exactly like it but something like that a, a fiery process of purification to be prepared for heaven and they're kind of problems either way because if you believe in the fiery purification idea then it suggests that we're kind of paying for our own sins through our suffering and then that raises the question didn't jesus make a complete atonement for us on the cross isn't salvation by the great by his grace of what he has done his finished work for us he said mm -hmm. cried out on the cross it is finished but then if you go the other direction you're an ultra universalist you said jesus died for everything he took everything you know took care of all sin it's all taken away it's not an issue for anyone then that means that the murderer who's shooting his victims down and then is shot down by a policeman goes immediately into god's blissful presence just as Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or anyone else, let's say, serving Christ goes immediately. And and for many people who are inclined toward universalism, that's a that's a bridge too too far. It just seems kind of extreme because you say, well, if that's true, then none of our moral or spiritual choices even matter right now. They're just all negated. As soon as you die, you're just freed from any consequences of any sins that you've made. And so the 19th century American universes struggled with this and they never could agree with one another. They were divided on this. They said there has to be a moral connection between the choices we make now and our eternal state because scripture says that God will render to everyone according to what they've done. There's this idea of rewards mm -hmm. in heaven as well as punishments and in hell. So so there's there's a real problem with in universalist theology. Either way you go, whether you have the immediate heaven for everyone at the moment of death or you say that there is a process to get us ready for heaven hmm. yeah i think i was watching one of those youtube videos you were talking about uh where you were they were asking you questions about universalism and they were really quick and one of the things that i noticed in there you were talking about the curb appeal 
of this viewpoint, which is true. I mean, Love Wins by Rob Bell was super popular for a reason. It sounds good. It's something that we we want to believe, you know, if I if I get to <laughs> meet the Lord one day and he says, hey, guess what? It's a surprise. Everybody's in. Uh, great. Right. But I don't see anything like that in scripture. What kind of justification since there are full on churches that are embracing this kind of theology? I mean, I think of Rachel's mentioned, and it's come up in a couple of conversations, Richard Rohr, you know, and the universal Christ and this idea, I'm guessing, now I might be wrong. He's a universalist too, isn't he? He, he believes the same kind of thing. He, yes. If you look closely, he is universal, but, but the problem is really, really deep with in Rohr, in his book, The Universal Christ, because he he says the problem is that Christians are attached to the human physical Jesus. He said that the body of Jesus doesn't even exist. It exploded into particles of light. So that's the Easter message for Roar. It's not he has risen. He has exploded. Yeah. Hallelujah. So the yeah. saints in heaven who bow before the lamb that was slain, I guess they're, they are bowing before a receding bank of photons that are sort of spreading throughout the universe. I mean, how is this good news that the whole glory of the gospel is that God entered into our humanness and that that a, one of us a human being is ascended and risen at the right hand of the father that he continues to to be god and man in one right mm-hmm. the incarnation didn't end and so if you give that up it changes everything right changes everything so they're just really really fundamental problems in and, and Rohr is essentially a monist he believes that everything he one point he says everything is christ mm-hmm and I use, you know, an article, a critique of her, I said, how do you get moral discernment out of this? If every, okay, really, if everything is Christ, think about this. Christ is the Jewish girl hiding in the closet. And Christ is also the Nazi stormtrooper kicking the door in. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, that's kind of alarming. Is I mean, you say, well, we should side with the victim. Well, what if someone is, they're into Nazi stormtrooping, right? I mean, there's like no... This is a problem with monism, where there's the ultimate oneness of all things. You you actually have to di- differentiate to have a difference between good and evil in the world. And this is a, a well-known philosophical problem. Hmm. So where did this come from? Were the early Christians, I know you just got done writing a book about, you know, yeah. the history of the church. Were there early Christians that were like, yeah, in the end, God saves everybody. And we can look to scripture to point that out. Is that the, the the early universalists seem all to be connected with one person named named Origen. Okay, and Origen who lived from about 180 to about 250, 251, I believe. Um, he's really the source of universalism. A lot of the universalists say, well, this is New Testament teaching, and it continued all through the early church. Uh-uh. If you look at the second century, you can't find universalism in the mainstream of Christianity. The only place you can find it is in among some of the so-called Gnostic teachers. Irenaeus, the first the first datable reference to universalism seems to be in Irenaeus's book against heresies in the second century. We talked about a group called the Carpocratians. Carpocrates was their their teacher. Carpocrates had had some terrible teachings. He believed that to glorify God as much as possible, you need to sin as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. So they call it passing through all things, every kind of crime, you know, murder, adultery, incest, you had to commit all that. So you'd be forgiven all of that. 
And then when you went through all the different possible sins and were forgiven of them, then you would be saved. And then, and then there's a statement, and thus all souls will be saved. That's directly stated in Irenaeus. That's the first reference, clear reference to, in, to universal salvation. And it also seems to suggest a reincarnation idea that you keep getting re, you know you keep your soul transit through a number of different incarnations or bodies until so it's a very it's not at all an orthodox christian or biblically based kind of universalism so that's where it first appears and then origin gives a little bit slightly more uh more uh biblical kind of approach that still has its problems because origin held that the souls of everyone who had ever lived already existed eternally with God. Don't you remember that, Janelle, when you and I were <laughs> Oh, yeah. We forgot. We When we come to the God, it's forgetfulness. We forget that, that all. The Mormons so, hold that belief, too, don't they? Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, it's called the guff. Yeah, that, that region. So I have a discussion of the Mormons in my big book. But so the souls, Origen said the end will be like the beginning. He thought the souls all start with God. And they fall into these physical bodies and then they they go through various experiences they, but everybody ultimately learns their lesson right and then all souls ultimately go back so the the outcome is flows from the beginning and if you question the beginning then you're questioning the outcome and the beginning is not based on scripture because origin is suggesting before adam and eve there was this spiritual reality where they didn't have physical bodies and came into the bodies. It's also, think of this too. What does that imply about your view of your body? Is your body like a punishment for sinning then? Hmm. That's a really bad doctrine, right? That it's not an incarnational doctrine. Um, so so Origen, Origen presented this in the early church. It was discussed and formally rejected at the Fifth Ecumenical Council for in, in 553. So people if they take seriously this idea of following the tradition of the church, it was Origen was condemned by name. And it's it's pretty clear that it's because of his universalist views that this happened. And then universalism, it kind of goes, it kind of is like an underground current that's sort of flowing in, in here and there, but it's um it's it's not really accepted in in the mainstream church. And I found that there were some early Christian teachers out of it, but it was like 12 to 1 um, against universalism for those that supported it. And then really, it's not really till um, more recent times that universalism really becomes begins to take off. And actually, the popular literature, just within the last 25 years, is really around the, the beginning of the new millennium. There's this huge, like, hockey stick, you know, going suddenly uh emerging of a lot of new books defending universal you can point to individual figures but in terms of when you compare the numbers there to the thousands of christian teachers preachers writers that did not accept universalism it's it can't really be called a mainstream view so what i hear you saying is uh there's been crazy beliefs uh surrounding christianity forever <laughs> and there's been gnostic and these uh different um ideas that have tended to lead different people astray. Um, you know, Michael, we live in a culture where ideas are everywhere. And not mm -hmm. only that, but there's a lot of false fake news, right? I mean, right before we hit record today, I was just scrolling on my phones for a minute. And there was one of these reels that 
grabs your attention. I was on Facebook. It's not even TikTok. It's not even Instagram. I was on Facebook. And it was a reel about making your own reality, right? It was a picture of a, a girl just walking down towards the golf course. And within five minutes, she wasn't walking towards the golf course. She was walking towards the castle with the mountain, all these different things. It was a completely different picture. It wasn't real. And this podcast is called Finding Something Real. And so for somebody listening, who's a layperson, who's not an academic, who's sitting here going, oh my gosh, you know, how do you know what is real? How do you stay anchored? I'd love to, you know, take the conversation in that direction and have some practical wisdom for people who are looking for the real thing. Um, Because there's a lot of noise and a lot of detours. And the closer we get to Christ's return, the more crazy it seems. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm totally in sync with you on this on this particular point. One of my articles on universalism, it's called the opiate of the theologians, mm-hmm. and and this is a line actually before my book came out. I said this is going to get quoted, and, and it's sure enough, I said universalism <laughs> opiate. That's a variation. Karl Marx said, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses, mm-hmm. and what he meant by that is that in his view, as an atheist, people use religion to deaden themselves to the reality around them. Maybe their life is very, maybe they're suffering, they're in poverty, but they go and they they throw themselves into worship Sunday morning. And then that's, they feel better. And they think they, that it makes them feel better, but it doesn't change the situation. Now, when I say that universalism is the opiate of the theologians, I guess what I'm saying is that, that it, theologians who are attracted to, you know, bright, shiny objects, bright, shiny ideas, right? Are, can easily be caught up in this this kind of fantasy world of can't we imagine a world where the outcomes are different than what we see around us? Because we look around us and some people are responding to Jesus, some people are turning away from him. But what if, what if everyone responded gladly to the glad news? And I compare this to the, the triumphal entry moment. Jesus comes to Jerusalem and everyone is applauding Hosanna, Hosanna, yay, Jesus. Can't we just run that film in an endless loop? Hmm. You say, oh, wait a second. What does the gospel tell us? The same crowds cried, crucify him later. Like just a few days later, he was crucified. And or Karl Barth says, you know, perfect love appears in history and humanity has crucified it. And so this is the unsentimental character aspect of the gospel message. The gospel message is that that there is a is a human turning away from light and it isn't that the light isn't shining it's that there are people that in their fallenness and in their sin and confusion and you know are turning away from the light john chapter 3 says this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and then it says and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil mm-hmm. and that speaks to those who come to the light and those who go from the light and you know to make this more concrete i i use an illustration of a let's say a, a, a college freshman who's grown up in a very devout um, Christian home, stayed on the straight and narrow path, goes away to the state university, right? And they begin to get involved in some questionable things that their parents wouldn't approve of. And then the parents decide they're going to surprise, you know, Jonathan by showing up on Saturday morning, right? And they knock on the door, Jonathan, Jonathan, right there. And Jonathan's looking around and there's used condom there. There's, there's, you know, drug paraphernalia. Maybe he's got his Ouija board, his tarot cards over here, posters of naked women. And he's saying, oh, I don't want to open the door. So is Jonathan going to open the door? If he opens the door, he's coming into the light because the parents will 
open. They will look around the room. They will, you know, they'll have a conversation, right, about what the choices that he's that he's made after he's gone to university. Or he can pretend that he's not there and wait for them to leave. And that's kind of what John three is saying, is that that human beings, many of them, choose to pretend that there's no one knocking at the door. They would rather remain in the dark place than open the door and then have to deal with the consequences of that. That's a great analogy. Yeah. So for somebody who wants to be anchored in the midst of all of the crazy, um, what, what practical suggestions would you give that person? Well, I would, I would start with what I call the media diet. Because just as we're all familiar with the food diet, and if you eat junk food, you, you get bad results for your health. I think your mental health is affected by the media diet. And I think we have to really be deliberate about that. Um, and <clears throat> this, you know, this isn't just a matter of, oh, I'm not going to look at, you know, at content that has high violence or sexual content. There is Christian media that is alarmist, right? That is that generates a lot of anxiety and fear. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a friend, I was a ministry, I'll go nameless, but this is one that that puts out a lot of content by email and online and it's, you know, and the push notifications on the on the smartphone and so on. But it's it's very alarmist and it's and it's like, do you realize what's just about to happen in Congress or, you know, this is happening overseas? And um we really have to spend some time to think about like how to not just be passive recipients of the content that, that's available to us. It's just going to constantly streaming toward us in a situation like that. I mean, I, what I said to my friend at one point, I said, maybe you can make an appointment if you want to find out what's happening, um, but turn it into something positive, put into your, into your calendar that once a week, you will go to the website for that organization, find out what their needs are, Take about 10 minutes to watch and then take at least 10 minutes, maybe 20 minutes to pray about it. In that case, you're not just passively reacting to what's being presented, but you're taking the needs and bringing it before the Lord. So I think we have to kind of grab the bull by the horns. We have to take charge of what we are going to bring into our mind and in our living rooms and in the screens in front of us and what we're what we're going to what we're going to push away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I know that you are diving into the self-oriented spirituality topic, which I yeah. find fascinating. And I hope that we can have you on again in the future to talk more about that. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed in this culture, and I was even listening to a podcast recently, and they were talking about diet. And they were saying, you know, not one size fits all. You can choose. Like, don't have dogma around what you're going to eat. You get to do you. And we take that same, um, that same idea and we apply it to, in fact, there was just a book that I read last year, Strange Rites. Uh, I think it's what it was called. Uh, uh, Isabella Burton. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I started reading that and because uh, the pastor recommended it and it was fascinating. Like we're a culture that hates dogma. We want our own thing. Um, what is the problem with that? If Rachel's listening to this later going, why not believe in universalism? Why can't, why can't you, you know, do it? And I don't know that Rachel, that you would say that, but I'm just going to ask, why not? Why not? Well, um, because um, we can be, because we very well may be chasing fantasies and, and, and that uh, illusions that, 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 you know, that deceive us in the end, um, you know, in scriptural terms, um, 
you know, I, I, I did the study of the book of Jeremiah recently. What, what really struck me about studying Jeremiah is here's a culture that's approaching this great crisis, right? That's represented by the power of Babylon. And Jeremiah is preaching over a period of decades. And he's telling the people, you must repent. You must get right with God. You must stop worshiping these other gods. And they're going, no, 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 no. We're going to continue in our way. And they had this confidence that because they were God's covenant people, that uh, they, in chapter 7 says, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They would never be, you know, the, it was that area was sacrosanct. No enemy could ever enter in because God was like the shield around them. I, the reason I use this is I think we can kind of, it's kind of more concrete. You can understand. They had some really delusory beliefs, right, that were governing up to the very moment that the army is there and then it's too late and it's like it's over and and you know when the judeans they, they lost their their sovereignty at that point they never gained it back hmm. they never gained it because they they were under you know the babylonians and then they were you know their other overlords and then which in the days of jesus it's the romans that are in charge of it but it was a permanent and so are, could we be a culture like that where we're approaching you know, we have false beliefs about ourselves to believing, I mean, to take the, I mean, the economic mess, you know, and the, the deficit, and we're acting like we can be, we can be the exception to the rule. Every, every country that's, that's racked up the kind of debt that we have has gotten to a point where there's a currency crisis. And, and, um, and so I also, I mean, on the area of like personal choices, sexuality, this idea that we can live any way that we want for a period of time, then boom, we flip a switch and I can marry a person and everything is going to be hunky-dory. Like, there's not going to be any problems. I'm not going to be, even if I haven't contracted a sexually transmitted disease, I mean, what has happened to my mind my and heart? In what ways may I have been impaired by choices I made before I enter into this relationship that I want to be, you know, to be permanent and and and, and monogamous? So I think I think we're living in a culture where um where people are attracted to, to they're following um fantasies rather than than realities and this it certainly seems like one of the idea that like yeah i can eat i mean i can eat this fattening food and and it's not going to affect me because it's my own choice you know it doesn't yeah. change the calories i've taken in the fact that i've chosen it you know yeah but let's say somebody comes to you and says well that's your truth that's not my truth right how do you respond to that? Well, no one really lives by that. It's like people brought that out, you know, when it's convenient to in order to escape something, not dealing with something they don't want to deal with, particularly the idea that like God might have a claim on their life. You know, J.T. Moreland, the apologist at you know Biola, did encountered a student who said, again, it's like that's your truth, it's my truth, all you know, all truth is relative, there are no moral absolutes. And the story is that Moreland apparently found out where the student was living, what dorm he was in, and he showed up at the dorm without telling the student. And the student was like down the hall in the bathroom, and he walked into this, this his dorm door was open. So he walked in, he started unplugging a stereo. <laughs> and, and the student comes back, and he's like completely, of course, completely baffled. says, what are you doing? He says, I'm taking your stereo. And he said, you can't do that. <laughs> he said, why not? He said, you can't, you know, so... So suddenly, oh, he's not a relativist any longer because something actually directly affects. So, mm -hmm. and and just, it, it, it's like, I mean, to think of this in a, in a tangible level, it's like saying, 
I'm going to get in my car in Chicago and I'm going to drive east and end up in Los Angeles. Like, it's not possible, right? We understand, like, there is such a thing as north, west, east, south. You know, there is a, there is a, there are geographical distinctions like that. And, but people want to think that in the spiritual world, that um, there are no such principles and that whatever path I follow is going to lead to either the same result as everyone else or a good result in any case. And the, you know, we, we look through, through history and we see, we can, we can learn a lot by seeing the cycles of, you know, civilizations and cultures at different phases. And we are in a phase right now that kind of the, it feels like the late phase of let's pretend that things that are happening around us are not really happening. And just, and if we, if we pretend that they're not happening, then we're not going to be affected by that. And if you look and, at history, what's going to happen to us then? What's the next step? <laughs> Well, what's the next step? Well, I think um, I think there are critical changes ahead. I think now I I'm I believe that you know I believe that history is open. I'm not I, I don't believe I don't have a, a doctrine of social cultural doom. Uh, and it's it's it, again going back to the book of Jeremiah because it's scripture and I think we can learn from a concrete case in ancient times. Even when the Babylonians were at the very gate. Jeremiah turned to um, to Zedekiah, who was far from being a a model king, let's say. He wasn't an exemplary leader. But Jeremiah said, if you will go out to the Babylonians, then the city will not be burned. He said, you will go into exile. You will go into exile in Babylon. That's unavoidable. But the city won't be ruined. Well, Zedekiah wouldn't listen to him. But it strikes me that God's mercy was there right up to the very end. And also in the book of Jeremiah, and this is why I take hope even from a culture like ours, it seems to be more and more detached from reality and from accountability and a lot of important principles. That Jeremiah, the, 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 the bright hope of what God will do shines brightest even in this very, um, very uh, shadowy moment at the very end of the of the empire of Judah, and because Jeremiah is the one who predicts the new the new covenant that God will make a new covenant. He said the law will not be written on stone; will be written on people, the hearts of people. They won't have to say no, the Lord. They will all know Him because the the the, the law will be written within. And then there is and then there is that promise of return from exile. Mm -hmm. He said after seventy years I will bring you back. This is before they've gone into exile. Jeremiah's already telling the good news. You're you basically, by the way, guess what? You're, you know, they're fighting not to go into exile. He says, you're going to be coming back from exile. And Jeremiah, as an act of faith, the Lord tells him to go and buy a field. He buys a field, even as the army is besieging a city. And he says, take the deed, uh, you know, the title deed of ownership, put it in a jar, seal it up. So it will be preserved for the 70 years. It was just a prophetic action, a sign that, that this, this, land would be recovered again because the exile was not permanent as wicked as the people will be god's grace was upon them and then he and then there's those wonderful verses about the virgin shall you know shall, shall join in the dance and how the older people will watch the children playing on the streets of jerusalem once again so it's not all over although i'm sure for those who live through this disastrous siege of the city they thought it would be hmm. yeah um well, I do hope that we can have you on again in the future. This has been a great conversation. If people want to know more about you after this episode airs, what's the best way to find you? Um, well, they can. Um, I have an unusual name. I'm easy to find. On, on the web. So, <laughs> I, and there, are, there are two Michael McClymans, as far as I can tell, in the U.S. Um, 
I'm the only Michael J. McClellan. There is a Michael McClellan who runs a sandwich shop in San Francisco near my sister, and he's gotten good reviews. So I hope to meet him someday and find out if he is indeed my identical twin. <laughs> Do you have a website? What's that? Do I have Do a website? Uh, no, no, I don't. But well, well, actually, no, I do. I, I mean, I have, I have a, I have a. Yeah, they could go. They could do Michael McClymond, M C C L Y M O N D, and go to academia.edu. That's that's a website that that we professors use to present our material. And there's about fifty short um, samples of my writing. People could download there. So yeah, they could they could go there. There's a university web page as well. Great. We'll link that in the show notes. This is the final question we ask everybody. The Finding Something Real podcast is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. Real is an acronym for those things. Restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. All things that can be found in relationship with Jesus Christ. Which of those things, restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love, stands out to you the most in your life right now and why? I think uh, I would say restoration. Um, restoration is really important uh, principle to me. I mean, I haven't said much about this, but you know, I'm engaged in street ministry every week. Hmm. Um, the most violent street in America is in St. Louis, and that's where I go every Saturday morning. So, uh, Grand Grand Avenue and Natural Bridge at that corner, I begin prayer walking there, and there are people that we meet. Actually, just this last week, talk about restoration. There's a woman who came up to us and one of our prayer uh, prayer uh, walkers had prayed with her and she said, I'm 45 days clean off of fentanyl. Hmm. And that, if you know about just how addictive that stuff is, that is a huge, huge breakthrough. Hmm. And so we, we see restoration and, and there are others who have, there was a guy who had overdosed and got a Narcon shot and one of the worship leaders, now this is real discipleship, He's a worship leader of local church. He took the guy off the street into his home. Hmm. Now he relapsed again, once, twice, but um, you know, he he seems to have come out of that now. And wow. so we see people who are in really extreme, you know, situations in, in street ministry. I know it does and for not everyone has such an obvious or outward manifestation of being in a state of lostness or confusion, but in, in street ministry, it's, it's pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. So restoration is, is a, is a wonderful thing. And, and look, we, we all need to know that there's another opportunity when we've screwed up and, and, yeah. and we've made the wrong, we've made the wrong choice. Yes. Amen. We all need that grace. Well, Michael McClyman, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting young women to join me as they share their personal stories and ask honest questions or share objections to the Christian faith. We hope to feature a different story each month and then invite Christian guests on to share from their own journeys and experiences and maybe answer some of those questions in follow-up episodes. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that. But if you're curious at all at whether there's something real to be found in Jesus, 
I invite you to come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.